Welcome, and you notice when you came in, when you came in that we don't have the chairs on the wings, and that's uh, because of the baptism dinner that we had in here Sunday evening, and we took all of the chairs up so that the floor could uh, get cleaned, and then uh, we set up enough for tonight, and then the others will get set up for uh, for Sunday. So that's the reason that we have it that way. Let me make a few announcements, and then we'll pick up where we've left off in our series We have no midweek services next Wednesday because of Thanksgiving the next day. So no kids program, no teen program. This class, uh, nothing's meeting next Wednesday, two weeks from tonight, we'll we'll resume. This coming Sunday, we conclude the eight-week You've Got Questions, God Has Answers uh, series. And the question we're going to be answering is, isn't the church just a man-made Institution. That's something that you'll hear people say a lot. They'll say it in different uh, wording, but words to that effect. Also, our newcomers orientation class uh, starts uh, one week from Sunday. One week from Sunday during the 11 o'clock hour for four weeks. So if you've never been to the newcomers orientation class, I encourage you to uh, pencil that in. Uh, it's a class that I lead for those four weeks. We give you a booklet of material tells you about our church and a bit about what we believe and where we've come from and why we do things the way we do. It's a small setting, so you can ask questions if you have them. Uh, it doesn't obligate you to anything, uh, to joining the church or any of that. It just gives you information that would help you decide whether or not this is where God would have you to serve and grow. So that'll be a week from this Sunday that we'll start that four-week class. While I'm doing that, <clears throat> the folks that'll be in the auditorium here will be taught by those four weeks, four of our men. Uh, Matt Olmstead will teach uh, the, the first week, and then Paul McKenzie the second week, Troy Fisher, and then Dr. Combs after that. So you'll have a succession of four of our guys teaching on whatever it is they want. I'll be doing the newcomer's orientation. We'll have the Membership 101 class also going on. That's for people that have joined our church since the last membership class. And then for ages 18 to 25, for those four weeks, we'll have the Crossroads class, and Bob Fight is going to be leading that. And then our newcomer's brunch is Saturday, December the 1st at 10 a.m. at our house. And if you've never been to one of the brunches, we'd love to have you come. Even if you've been around here for a while, but you were just never able to attend uh, when the brunches were scheduled, then uh, please consider yourself a newcomer, and we'd uh, like to have you. We need to know, though, how many people are coming, so at the Information Center desk out in the lobby, you can let them know and they can put your name on the list. And then last, on Friday the 7th of December is the annual Ladies' Christmas Social, and I'm told that we have uh, all 24 tables that will be set up for that. Uh, We have hosts for all of those, and now we just need to know who all is coming. So you need to register to say you're coming. And you can do that at our website. You go to the website. There's a banner page on the website. You click on that, and then you can uh, put yourself in to register for attending. All right, this is Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted. And let me review uh, somewhat quickly, and then we'll get into the material that you have in your your hands. We've uh, looked at the motivation for giving the gospel, the motivation for evangelizing. And the reason that we started the the course doing that is because as the title of this series suggests, we, all of us, have some hesitance 
in giving the gospel, and thus the name faint-hearted. So it's evangelism for the faint-hearted, those of us who might fear the rejection, the ridicule, uh, the uh, doubt that we might have about whether or not we can present clearly, whether we can answer the questions that people might have. A lot of reasons why we, why we might hesitate to give the, the gospel, even though we know that that's something the Lord wants us wants us to do. So to help us overcome that, we've looked at the motivation. Why should I? Why should we give the gospel? And we saw a couple of things in particular that I elaborated on for the first few weeks of this series. One was the the beauty of the, the glory of God. That it is through the evangelism, through the giving of the gospel and the transformation that takes place when someone embraces the message of the gospel. It's through that that the person is is changed into the image of, of Christ, which is the purpose for which we were made to reflect God back to God. We were made in the image of God. The image, though, has been marred by, by sin. All of us come into this world then, none of us reflecting God accurately. All of us uh, reflecting God to some extent. We still have the image of God. But it's it's marred. And so the illustration that I've used over the years is that we were made to be mirrors in which God looks at us and he sees his own character. But now because of sin, that mirror is kind of a carnival mirror. It's distorted. You can still make out the image to some extent, but nothing looks quite right. The mirrors are cracked. The mirrors are fogged. And so uh, the gospel is what begins God's repair project on the broken mirrors that all of us are. So one motivation then to overcome our faint-heartedness is the beauty of the glory of God. The glory of God is the display of his character, and we don't display his character accurately until the mirrors that are broken by sin are are repaired. So that's one reason. Another reason that we spent a couple of weeks on that we should overcome our faint-heartedness is not only the beauty of the glory of God, but the beauty of the gospel itself. And so we took some time to look at the six things that the gospel does, that we can easily just think of the gospel as a message you give. Somebody accepts that, they receive it, they pray, and that's that. But the Bible gives us a a very full description about all that's accomplished in, in the gospel. We saw the effectual call that happens as part of the gospel. We saw regeneration, the giving of New life that happens, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification in the future. All of that is about the gospel. So I wanted to take some time then to have you, as it were, fall in love with the gospel again. And having done that and having seen its beauty, hopefully be motivated to overcome the faint-heartedness that all of us are susceptible, susceptible to. All right, so let's assume you've done that. Let's assume that you buy into, you know, the glory of God's worth it. That's the purpose that God has in his world, and he allows us to be a part of that purpose in being his ambassadors and giving the the gospel. And you see the beauty of the gospel, and that motivates you, but then you have uh, obstacles. And the main obstacle that we have in giving the gospel or having the gospel have success is the people to whom we go. So we had a lesson on to whom do we give the gospel. And we saw there that the Bible says that the situation is actually pretty bleak. 
if left to itself. If God doesn't intervene, the truth is, if God doesn't intervene, nobody receives the message. And so we just, we are just giving the words, but it's falling on dead ears. Uh, because people are spiritually dead, according to the Bible. So you have this this obstacle because the people we go to, according to Romans chapter 1, are people on the one hand who know God, we saw, because God has made himself plain to everyone in creation and through the conscience that he's given to all people. They know God, but because of sin, they don't want to know God. That's the second thing. So the truth they know, they hold down, they suppress. And then because of that, Romans chapter 1 and verse 22 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And I explained what foolishness is. It's not ignorance. It's not a lack of intelligence. Uh, it's rather the opposite of ignorance. It's, it's knowledge, knowing, knowing God, but failing to appropriate and apply what it is that we know about God. And that's the condition of all people before they, before they come to Christ. All right, so I'm motivated now to overcome my faint-heartedness, to give the gospel, but I've got this obstacle that really would be insurmountable. God is the only one who ultimately can overcome that by moving on the heart of the individuals to whom we give the gospel. But how can I even relate? How can I even relate to people who are still in the world, and I now am a Christian and I'm no longer of the world, as John 17 says. And so how am I going to relate? How am I going to have a relationship with people who need the very message that we've been called to give? And so we had a lesson titled that. How do we relate? How can we, how can we relate? And we bridge the gap we've seen with common ground. Common ground. We have common ground with unbelievers because they are made in the image of God. They know God. One. And two, as you've heard me say over those last few weeks, the unbeliever is living his or her life on the basis of the sometimes called borrowed capital, I call it the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. They're living in God's world. This is God's world. They're using his stuff. As a matter of fact, the world can't work unless it operates according to God's rules and people can only go so long and so far in their own lives and as a society as a whole and refuse God's rules without experiencing the consequences in a severe fashion. We're seeing that. We're seeing that in our own society now. We're seeing people who have rejected God's principles uh, over a long period now in America. And we're reaping the whirlwind uh, as a result of, of, of that. And people do that in their own lives as, as well. But they can reject that. They, they do. But they still are made in the image of God, and they still do things that they're borrowing, stealing from the biblical worldview. Things like marriage. I mentioned that as the illustration, but marriage is something that came from God. Marriage is something that God gave. And Despite how bad it is and despite now, because of the dissent over a long period of time of rejecting God's principles, it follows that you're going to come to a point where people aren't going to use their bodies. They're not going to use God's institutions as God in, intended them. And so you're going to have Romans 1, 
said people will abuse their, their bodies, that you will have men with men and women with women. In other words, you'll have homosexuality. You'll have marriage redefined. We've just had that just in the last few years. Really, that's really living in a momentous time in a negative way. Um, I mean, literally for millennia, not just centuries, millennia, (laughs) marriage was defined by everybody worldwide, globally, a man and a woman. And within our lifetimes, that's changed. But it's the inevitable place that it that it goes. Nevertheless, there are still a lot of people who believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And they want to get married by a minister. Many of them want to get married in a church. Why? Because they're living off the borrowed capital. Well, here's what that means then. Those people face some of the same kind of common issues within the same institutions that God has created that that we have. God is the one who created work. Did you know that? God created work in the Garden of Eden. So the fact that you have co-workers, that's all part of God's design. God created government. Did you all know that? God's the one who gave government. So the fact that we pay taxes and the fact that we vote and the fact that we don't like our leaders a lot of times and all that stuff, this is still all living within the biblical worldview. Work, Government, family, marriage, parenting, children, all sorts of things that we have in common with the the unbeliever. All sorts of things that we struggle with, like they struggle with. Now, notice I say we struggle with like they struggle with. We're going to see in tonight's lesson that we deal with it differently, hopefully, as Christians, but nonetheless... We struggle with government. We struggle in our families. We struggle with work and the things that God has given. But we have in common with the unbeliever the fact that we all are living within the world that God has given. And that cannot be escaped. So with that, first page. So how do we proceed with all of that? And that's what this lesson then is about. How do we, where do we go from there? Top of page 22. So 22, that's page 22. Uh, When we finish, we will put all of the notes that we've been handing out to you in one notebook so that you can have them. Uh, And anybody who wants a full notebook will be happy to get, get that to you. But page 22, how do we proceed? There can be no doubt that one of God's objectives for his church is to reach other people with the gospel. Now, notice I say there, there can be no doubt that one of God's objectives is to reach other people with the gospel. I don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to make sure we're all clear. Evangelism, or the giving of the gospel, is not the purpose for the church. It's not the purpose. Just think for a moment. What would, if you if you had to answer, what would be the the purpose for the church? What would it be? Glorify yeah, good. Edie says glorify God because Edie knows that when you're in church, if you say glorify God, you've got a fifty percent chance. <laughs> but she also it turns out to be right. 
And as I have said, to bring glory to God means the display of his character and evangelism is the means by which that process starts in the life of an individual. And so if the the ultimate purpose is the display of God's character, then the things that that allow that to happen, that make that happen, become extremely important. Evangelism, then, is the beginning of that. So it's an a very important objective, it's just not the ultimate purpose. And why, why do we care about that? Well, partly because uh, you ought to always got to bear in mind what the ultimate purpose is. Because the ultimate purpose should shape the way you go about the objectives that get you there. You see, if the ultimate purpose is is evangelism rather than the glory of God, then the means that you use for evangelism are not are not constrained by the character of God. You see, friends, this is one of the things that's happening in our churches. People think that evangelism, reaching people, is what's most important to God. But actually, what's most important to God is God and the glory of God. And so how we go about reaching people is constrained, defined by the character of God. We don't just do anything to reach people. Not just everything is acceptable as long as it works. But we live in a day of Christianity that is pragmatic. If it works, it's okay. And working is defined as reaching crowds of people. So then the justification for how we do it is found in the results. Hey, look, lots of people are responding to it. So you can have a church in our area a few years ago. Get into the New York Times. The New York Times. By putting yard signs around with off-color words on these yard signs. Got everybody's attention. It worked in the sense that lots of people came to find out what was going on. But does it display the character of God? Do you see what I mean by the the character of God has to shape then how we go about evangelism? So the purpose is the glory of God, the display of his character. And evangelism is an indispensable means by which that's achieved. But then evangelism isn't to be left alone. Another objective that the church has, that we have as God's people, is not only to see people evangelized, but to see them edified. That is, built up in the faith. They come to Christ through evangelism. They're built up in the faith through through edification. And both of those, evangelism and edification, restore the image of God in the, in the individual. All right. There can be no doubt that one of the of God's objectives for his people is to reach other people with the gospel. Top of page 22, the Great Commission and many other passages make this clear. One such passage is Matthew 5. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So notice... 
Let your light shine before people. They see your good deeds, and this has a positive effect on them. So one principle you can draw out of that is this, that the messenger matters. The messenger. Now, we're going to see in the notes you have, we're going to be reminded of the message and what kinds of things do we want to get across to people in giving the message. The message matters. The message, the gospel matters. But the messenger matters too. You see, if the messenger didn't matter, then you could, you could have whatever kind of attitude you want. You could behave any way you want at work, in front of your neighbors, in your family, as long as you got the message straight. And then you could, you know, say to people who say, you know, you don't really act like a Christian. So why are you beating me up with this message? And then you could say to them, if the messenger doesn't matter, say, hey, look, just accept the message, all right? Shut up and accept the message. You know, it's an exaggeration, but that's what some people do. They beat people over the head with the gospel, with the Bible, but they're not living in a way that's consistent with what the Bible teaches and in many cases uh, turns people off. So the messenger matters. The credibility of the messenger and his or her life matters. Now, one way to view our responsibility and a methodology to fulfill that responsibility is in the formula that you see there, HPCP. CC equals MI. What is that? The MI stands for maximum impact. To have the greatest spiritual influence on those around us, the passage quote, the MI stands for maximum impact, which is to have that greatest spiritual influence. The passage quoted above provides two elements that allow for that maximum impact, salt and light. So you are salt and you are you are light. That, in turn, should have impact on people with whom we come in contact. How so? The impact of salt. Salt does at least three things. Create thirst, add spice, and preserve. The fact is that Christian witness can do all three. Believers who live authentically before those in their sphere of influence often create a spiritual thirst in them. Now, now, what does that what does that mean? That the way you live around unbelievers creating this this spiritual thirst, uh, it, it simply means that they look at what's going on in the common circumstances that we each have. You're in a circle of commonality. You work together. Your family, your relatives, your neighbors. Uh, your spouses, <laughs> your parents to these children, who, you know, whoever. You've got some area of commonality. You're in a circle, a sphere of influence with this person. And they see you in similar circumstances to those that they are in. And what they see is not that you have it better. It's not that. 
I mean, what the unbeliever sees in us is not, hey, those Christians have it better. Am I right about that? I mean, unless you're a Joel Osteen, you know, devotee that says, you know, if you belong to Jesus, then you're rich and you're supposed to be healthy and all of that. And you can preach on that every single week. Did you know that? Every single week you can be a Christian motivational speaker. Anyway, all right, I feel better. And so it's not that unbelievers look at us and they say, yeah, those guys have it better. No. I mean, sometimes as a Christian, you might have it worse. You might have it worse because you're a Christian. So it's not that what they see. They see something that creates some sometimes some intrigue on their part but it's not that we have it better now hear this it's that you handle it better it's not you have it better you handle it better you handle it differently it's not that everything's okay it's not that everything's cool it's not that we don't have any difficulties no we got plenty we live in a fallen world Trials of many kinds, sickness, job problems, finance problems, kid problems, teacher problems, you know, in-law problems, outlaw problems. He's got, right? Long list of problems. The difference is not primarily the problems. Now, you go down a sinful road long enough, you will develop even more problems. Even more consequences, that's for sure. And so, there can be a divergence even in the problems we have. But many of the problems that we have with the people that we have this commonality with are the same kinds of problems. It's not we have it better. It's that we handle it better. Now, that should be challenging to us. Because we should ask ourselves, do I handle it better? Do I handle the stuff of life better than unbelievers? And guys and gals, friends, if Christianity is anything, it's that. In terms of its practical, obvious value, God has made a difference in the life of this person so that they have a serenity, they have a calm about them, in the midst of the storm. That they don't react. They don't wig out like everybody else does. They don't go crazy about, you know, what's going on in the political world because they don't live for the political world. They don't, they don't lose it when things don't go the way they want at work. They don't join in the rebellion that everybody's getting together to undermine the boss and whatever we're doing, they don't do that. They're willing to do what they're told, even if they don't agree with what they're told. Do it with a different attitude. This all comes from a transformation. This is all what the Bible teaches. And then people look at that, and that's different. And so that creates, sometimes, not always, that's why we say often, but it often creates... A thirst, a desire to know more about that. 
It's this kind of living that gives rise to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that you have. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. Okay, that's a First Timothy three or First Peter three fifteen. But what does that assume? That there'll be people asking that question. Why would they ask that question? Because there's something going on with you. There's some hope that you have that's different from what they have, and they see that in the circumstances that we're each involved in. So the impact of, of Saul, middle of that middle paragraph. Believers who live authentically before those in their sphere of influence often create a spiritual thirst. Genuine Christians also put a little zing into a sometimes bland cup of soup by boldly but lovingly expressing what appears to be a radical point of view believers put some spice into the lives of those around them so that's the second thing in that first line in that paragraph it says salt creates thirst the second thing was it creates spice that's what's being spoken of here this zing into a bland cup of coffee boldly but lovingly expressing what appears to be a radical point of view by doing that believers put some spice into the lives of those around them People see someone willing to stand for something and even be willing to pay a price for standing for that something. Doing it lovingly, not beating somebody over the head, but saying, no, this is what I, this is true. And I stand on that. And I believe that. It's not the common approach. The common approach is to go along to get along. A Christian doesn't do that. And then third, finally, the Bible teaches it's the Holy Spirit in believers that holds back the moral decay in society. That's the preservation that is salt-like. So friends, political power does not preserve society. Godliness does. Man, that would be great for us to just remember for the the rest of, not just now, not just this set of election cycles, (laughs) but for the rest of your life. That political power is not what preserves society. Godliness is what preserves society. So it's not who's in power. Not that you don't care about that. But we don't put our hope in that. And if we put our hope in that, then we'll be willing to compromise and do whatever to get our person or our party in there. And then we'll lose credibility. When we lose credibility... Now we can't give the gospel with good effect. Now note, salt has none of these qualities unless it possesses, or none of these effects unless it possesses two qualities, potency and proximity. Potency and proximity. That is, it must be potent enough to have an effect. Potent means powerful. So God is omnipotent, omnipotent. That is, he's all-powerful. So it has a potency. It has a, has a power to it. And it must be potent enough, powerful enough to have an effect. So, hear this. Genuine Christianity 
as opposed to cultural Christianity, is extremely powerful. Genuine Christianity as opposed to just cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is just a brand of Christianity that conforms to the culture. That's what I mean by cultural Christianity. It's a brand, it's an approach to the so-called Christian life that violates directly Romans 12 too. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But a cultural Christianity just wants people to like us. So in order for the world to like us, let's become like the world. And if you do that, you lose your potency. You lose your power. So biblical Christianity, genuine Christianity, as opposed to cultural Christianity, is extremely powerful because it doesn't simply attract, it changes It doesn't simply attract people, it changes people. Cultural Christianity says, come as you are. And stay as you were. That's cultural Christianity. Biblical Christianity says, come as you are, leave transformed, leave different. But that's power. That's potent. So it must be potent enough to have an effect, and it has to get close to whatever it's supposed to impact. So that means you get close enough to know and to interact with pre-believers. Every now and then I go into that pre-believer Just to remind us to have confidence in gospel success. God's the one who does this, but God's the one who sent us. And, you know, I don't know who's going to respond to the gospel. I just know this. The more I give it, the more elect people there seem to be. So God's the one who chooses, ultimately. But he chooses to use the giving of the gospel to make that known. And so... We have to get to know unbelievers and meaningfully interact with unbelievers. Meaningfully interact means you don't have a sales pitch that you do in your evangelism. In the notes that you have in front of you, there's material that we'll go through about the kinds of things that we want to communicate. And in that material, I say there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think that's a mistake that we have made in our evangelism over the years is people have learned a methodology and then they try to get people pigeonholed so that they can go through their method with them. So if you're not careful, it comes off as sort of a sales technique. I know the things I'm supposed to say and and if you deviate, you the person I'm talking to deviate, if you ask me like a question, yikes, what am I going to do with that? So it's not a personal, interpersonal interaction. It's you listen to me and let me go through the pitch. And then at the end of the pitch, you sign on the dotted line or you don't. So you've got to have this potency and this proximity. The proximity means getting close to 
the people that we're supposed to impact, and that means knowing and interacting meaningfully with pre-believers. Bottom paragraph, the potency and proximity then represent the HP and the CP in that equation. So you've got high potency and close proximity, and then we're going to see what the CC is in a bit. So it's easy to see that having one of those, the high potency and the close proximity, one of those without the other will have little impact. If we endeavor to get close to unbelievers but have little to offer in our life and message, will not have much effect. Now, let me just stop there. I'm not saying you won't have a big crowd. (laughs) Remember, cultural Christianity attracts lots of people, tons of people. But when we talk about impact, we're talking about eternal impact. We're talking about transformative kind of impact. It'll have... It won't have much effect. On the other hand, many Christians have much to offer, high potency, but they don't get involved with unbelievers and thereby achieve few results. So you may be somebody who's growing leaps and bounds in the Lord. You may be somebody who knows the word of God. You may have a ton to offer. Well, you don't have anybody and you're not cultivating relationships with anybody to offer it to. So as one author has said, Christians must get out of the salt shaker. If we are to be salt, okay, but if you're not careful, the church gathering becomes a salt shaker and the salt never gets outside of the shaker so that it impacts people outside of it. All right, that's salt, now the impact of light. To put it simply, light makes things visible so that they can be seen for what they really are. This is what we mean when we say we want to shed some light on an issue. With regard to our witness, it means to clearly and attractively present God's truth to others. The light of God's truth to other people. So, for instance, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, in order to present... Truthfully, we're going to see clearly in just a bit. In order to do that, that means, of course, presenting the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, the content. I would just add this, that it also means if we're going to be conduits of light, if we're going to shed light for people, it's primarily the light of the truth, the content, but it's also removing misconceptions that people have, false conceptions that people have about Christians and Christianity. And I would encourage you as an evangelist to them to just be aware of that. As you talk to people, think about what do unbelievers think about believers? Do they think accurately about true believers? Very often, the answer is no. They've acquired their notions of Christianity from inauthentic Christians. That's where they've gotten it. And the problem for you and me is then we come along and they go, oh, you're one of those people. So ask yourself, what do people think about Christians? I talked about some of it on Sunday morning, about why is the church full of hypocrites. 
A lot of people think that, right? Because they've met holier-than-thou people who act like they don't have any issues. And so as a result, that's a stumbling, that's a roadblock for us, an obstacle for us. Be aware of that. Be aware of it so that you're particularly conscious of how you act toward people and how you admit humbly that, listen, I struggle. When I say I'm a Christian, it doesn't mean I don't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean I don't have any problems. Let me tell you some of them. So it's not a holier-than-thou kind of kind of an approach, but they think that. And when we started this church, uh, I made a list of things that people think about churches and in particular that they think about pastors. I mean, one of the things, am I right that one of the things people think about pastors is they want my money? That's one of the things they think. I know that before the unbeliever comes in. Many, not all, but many of them are going to think that and they don't even know me, but they know that dude wants my money. And somebody drug me to this stupid church and I got to, you know, I'm going to sit through this thing, but I know that guy wants my money. How do I know? Because I've seen guys like him on TV. And they're always asking for money. And sure, when it gets to the point where we start to pass the hat, okay, here we go. Right? That's what that guy's thinking. Here comes the shakedown. And so I know for you that hear it every single week, you could just hit the recorder, but I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for that guy. That guy. I'm saying, don't worry about the offering. Pass it to the person next to you. Why am I doing that? Because I'm trying to remove that false notion that we want your money. It's a true notion that many professing Christians want your money. It's not true that authentic Christians want your money. And I want you to see authentic Christianity. Or, they think, that guy can't relate to anything that's going on in my life. I mean, he's got a Christian family, and he's got Christian kids, and he lives in a Christian ivory tower, and he doesn't know anything about the stuff that I'm going through. That's what they think. So you got to throw some stuff in that lets people know, no, I've actually had to live life too in a fallen world. And I've got family who has substance abuse issues. And I've got my own struggles. And all of us have our stuff. This guy doesn't know anything. This guy's telling me that Christianity is a better way to live and he doesn't know anything about what it is to live outside of Christianity. It's one of the reasons that every now and then I quote a rock and roll song and say those great theologians, it's one of the reasons I do that. So that person can say, oh, really? You know something about that? But then tell them something much better. So as we as we do this, as we shed this light, it's, yes, giving the truth of the content of the gospel, but it's also seeking to convey accurately what a Christian is. And a Christian is not the stuff you saw on TV. And it's not that guy you worked with at your previous employer that came in and beat you over the head with the Bible. It's not that. And by God's grace, I'm going to show you that. So to illuminate, next paragraph, the message of Christ, it requires that we live out 
his teachings. But also that we explain his message with precision and accuracy. And that's the CC in that equation, clear communication. Now, contrary to much popular thinking, it's not enough to simply live out your faith and hope that those around you will see it, want it, and somehow figure out how to get it. That is a notion that many people, hey, I don't talk to people about, I just live Jesus and I hope they see that. You know, Romans 10, we have it quoted for you there. You know, how will they hear unless they have someone who's willing to speak up? So it's got to be both. It's got to be a life that backs up the message, but indeed it's got to be the verbal witness of the message. There's this quote that goes around. You'll see it on the internet every so often from St. Francis. Uh, It goes something like this. uh, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Well, that sounds cool. But, you know, use words if necessary. Here's what I'm telling you. More important, here's what the Bible's telling you. Words are necessary. Okay? Words are not ancillary to the gospel. So the life is important, but the words are essential. So that's the CC. So what you've got is now... Back on that previous page, you've got high potency and close proximity and clear communication. The three of those together results in maximum impact. So avoid fuzzy math when you do the equation. We need, we each need to ask whether the following equation then accurately describes the current condition of our lives. Is there a high potency? Am I living an authentically Christian life? And an authentically Christian life is not a perfect life. It's a life that admits its struggle with sin, but goes to the Savior with that sin. High potency, close proximity. Am I interacting with, getting to know and interacting the people who need what we have to offer? And then clear communication. And the result of that is then maximum impact. But many Christians try to make fuzzy math work. Some attempt to make impact with high potency without proximity. Others have so much proximity they lose the distinctiveness necessary to be salt. You see that? So much, you're so close to the world, you become like the world. So you don't have the, the potency. But there's simply no alternative to cultivate and living all three elements in order to be effective witnesses for Christ. All right. So with that, what do we do? Well, Colossians chapter 4 gives us some action steps if you call the principles out of what the Apostle Paul says in these five verses. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too. That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I, Paul, am in change. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. You see that? The messenger matters. Be wise in the way you act. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation Be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 
All right, that's a that's an evangelistic context. Pray for me, Paul, that I'll be able to give the message, that God will open doors for me to give the message. And then following that example, he says, you be wise in the way you act toward outsiders and you make the most of every opportunity and let your conversation. So it's not just me, it's you. So let's do this, says Paul. And here are some action steps then that come out of that. Establish redemptive relationships. Be watchful. Make the most of every opportunity. And so look for people with whom you can establish a relationship for the sake of the gospel. Now, who would those people be? Well, your contacts can come from lots of places. Here are three categories. People that you know. People that you know right now. So just right now, think about people you know who aren't Christians. And by the way, if you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not sure if they're a Christian, then assume they're not. Okay? I mean, Christians are people who look like it and act like it, who have been transformed by it. If the person is a Christian and you can't tell, then that person is in disobedience to God and the Bible says he's going to discipline them or kill them, one or the other. To take them home. So, operate on the assumption that Christians look like it and act like it. So, who do you know? Think about who you know. Think about who you work with. Think about your family members. Think about your neighbors that you know right now don't know Jesus. That list right there could keep you busy. Praying for those people, praying for opportunities for doors to open to those people to give the gospel. But it also should have a sanctifying effect on you and on me because as we think about doing that, we now we got to think about, you know, how do I live around those people? Am I living in a distinctive way in front of my coworkers, in front of my family, my neighbors? But make a list of the people you know who don't know Jesus. And then there's people you used to know just that you've just fallen out of contact with. That you reestablish contact with. You reestablish contact and, and just befriend them or again like you did in the past. And take time. Don't feel like you've got to come and say, hey, I was making a list of people I used to know. You're one of them. Let me give you the gospel. No, be a friend to them. Be a genuine friend to them. Care about them. See them as who they are, a person made in the image of God that God cares about. And treat them accordingly. But at the same time, you're praying, Lord, open up a door, an opportunity for me to give the gospel. Or then people that you wouldn't want to know. So it's people you currently know, people you used to know, or people that you haven't gotten to know but 
you'd like to. So you got neighbors that you don't know. You got coworkers you don't know. You got family members that you don't know. So in these redemptive relationships, you have to make contact. That list right there will, those categories will allow you to make a healthy list of people. And then there's credibility. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. So you want to make these contacts, but in making these contacts, you know, don't speak for Jesus if you're not living for Jesus. Because it harms the reputation of Jesus. And if you're not living for Jesus, don't speak for Jesus. And do me a favor, don't tell him where you go to church. You know, if you're you're not living for Jesus, tell him you're a Jehovah's Witness. Tell him something. But don't tell him you go to CBC, right? I don't want you to lie. But credibility matters. The messenger matters. And then there's the communication. There's personal witness and personal invitation. That is, Lord, open doors for my friend to ask, hey, what's the deal with you? How are you handling things the way you're handling? And then God opens the door for you to be able to give witness to Jesus. Or there's just personal invitation. Invite them. Invite them to something. Invite them to something so that they can be around other Christians. It's one of the reasons we offer stuff that, yes, you can come to and have a good time, but you can invite somebody else to. Or invite them to church. Invite them to a Discovering God series. Invite them to a series. You've got questions. God has answers next time we do it. Or this Sunday for the last one. And then pray. Pray for the opportunities. For boldness to overcome our faint-heartedness, and then for God to give fruit in that witness. All right, so then there's the gospel presentation itself. We'll just begin that, and then we'll continue next week. But bottom of page 24, the primary means of sharing the gospel is through the network of contacts, contacts that God has provided to us. Relational evangelism is a process rather than an event. That is, it normally involves several steps before an opportunity for clear verbal witness can be given. So you guys you guys see that? I'm just trying to drill that home a bit. Don't feel pressure. Lots of churches, and there are still a lot of them that exist. I've been out of that for many, many years. I'm thankful. But I was in it for a period of time. And I know what it's like where the church creates a culture in which pressure is put on everyone to get another scalp this week. And you come back to church and you actually report on how many people made a profession of faith. And so this is high. People are going out there and they're trying to find somebody and they're saying, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? And, you know, the person is being polite about it. And then you've got your thing that you go through in five minutes. Do you think you're a sinner? Everybody does things right. You th- Wrong, right? Don't you think you've done things right? Yeah, I've done things. Okay, good. You're a sinner then. You understand that. You believe that. And then you, do you know that Christ, you, may, you know who Jesus is. Jesus died on the cross. You've seen the cross as a symbol of Christianity. Yeah, I believe, I believe Jesus died. Okay, Jesus died for those sins that you've committed. Do you want to go to heaven? By the way, there has never been a single person on the face of the earth who's been asked, do you want to go to heaven? And goes, nah. 
You know there's streets of gold there. Count me out. No more sickness. Golf all the time. You know, whatever your heart's desire, nah, count me out. You see within five minutes, do you see that? That you could get a person to pray the prayer? You're a sinner. Christ died for your sin. You want to go to heaven? Pray and ask him to forgive you and let you go to heaven. All right. Thanks. Move on. I was in a church like that when Kim and I were first dating and then, yeah, first dating. We weren't married when we were going to that church, right? Just dating. And I'll just give you one illustration of how that goes and we'll pick up next, uh, next in two weeks. But I was teaching, I was in college and I was teaching the college and career class. So I was in college, I was teaching the college and career class. We had a small college and career class. Rich and Tracy were in the college and career class. So with people like that in there, you know I had my hands full. <laughs> and we, uh, we would go out. The church would be invited and encouraged and really pressured to go out every Tuesday night to calling. It was called calling, which meant you went door to door. So you went door to door in the evening. By the way, when everybody's eating dinner, so they're really annoyed at you and you've got your stick down you've got your thing that you know to you know to say when somebody comes to the door and then after an hour and a half or two hours we come back to the church and people start to compare notes i had five people trust the lord you know i had that's nothing i had eight you know so now we're bragging it was really all carnal right but here's the thing we had all these people we would always have at least a dozen or more people who trusted jesus Every Tuesday. And the church was getting smaller. So what's happening to these people? How are they getting discipled? How are they getting right? No, they went through the quick thing. So I'm in this college and career. I'm leading this college and career thing. We're having an event at Rich and Tracy's house. And one of the guys who supposedly had made a young man who had made a profession of faith on one of those Tuesday nights, I was given his name and number to invite him to come to church and to come to this college and career event. And I did, and he said he wanted to come to the college and career event. So Kim and I picked him up. We were going to Rich and Tracy's house. And I'm just introducing myself to this guy. And I say, hey, I hear that you trusted Christ this past week. And he goes, yeah, you know, I wanted to talk to you about that. Okay. He says, how do I know Jesus existed? Well, I wasn't expecting that from this new convert. Yeah, I don't even know if Jesus was real. So I end up having to have this long conversation to try to explain biblical content about Jesus to this young man who had been told that he's on his way to heaven because he prayed a prayer in that five-minute presentation and this guy doesn't even know for sure Jesus existed. Right? And that just said to us, I remember the discussion Kim and I had, something is woefully wrong here. So you don't need to be in a hurry. It's God's timing. Right? 
It's God who's the one who saves people, right? God's allowing us to be used in the process. So you don't have to make it work. You don't have to force it. You have to live Jesus and you have to speak Jesus as God opens opportunity. Now, we'll see how to do that in two weeks, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us this time to consider this important issue of living the gospel and giving the gospel. Or help us to commit to doing that, to making that list in our minds of people that we know now, people we used to know, people that are could be in our circle that aren't. Each of us could make a, a long list that we could be praying for, asking you to open doors to so that we can give the gospel. Help us to represent you accurately. Help us to represent authentic Christianity, not cultural Christianity. Lord, we don't want to conform to the world. We want to see the world conform to you. And so help us to do that by our witness in our lives. Go with us this week. We would ask you to open up doors even this week to speak the gospel. Bring us back together this Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.